You mentioned beer miracles earlier. Yeah. Do you ever call them miracles? Well, I think I will from now on. <laughs> Thank you from that. You know? Miracles <laughs> is definitely going to be the title of this episode. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. Hey, everybody. Welcome to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you great stories and the Catholic news that matters each week. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. And very exciting news. I am joined this week in the studio by a very good friend to CNA, Christoph Wimmer. Christoph is the editor of CNA Deutsch, our sister agency in Germany. He's visiting us this week. And guys... It is totally providential to have a German visiting us this week because today, in the second week of Lent, we're talking about beer. In fact, all throughout Lent, we're going to be bringing you episodes about things that you might have given up for Lent because we think that's funny. And this is our episode about alcohol. So, Christoph, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Really enjoying this so far. So, you, Christoph, you got in uh, to the U.S. just yesterday and you're going to be here for more than a week, kind of at a little powwow of CNA. And um, you brought me gummy bears, which is awesome. You brought other people something called Jaffa Cakes, and you brought some people mo- monastery-produced gin. Is that right? That's right, yes. <laughs> but no beer, I'm afraid. But no beer. But we had uh, – Christoph and I had a fat tire and a left-hand milk stout last night, so I gave him some good good Colorado beers. Christoph, uh, why don't you get us started for the day? On the podcast this week, we'll sample some Trappist beer with Dr. Jared Stout, a beer enthusiast and author of a new book, The Beer Option. We talked with theologian Michael Foley about his book, Drinking with the Saints. And we talked with a guy who spent his entire Lent fasting only on beer. So stay with us. Uh, With us right now is a a friend of CNA, a friend of the show, certainly the director of formation at the Archdiocese of Denver, uh, a theologian who teaches at the Augustine Institute, and the author of a new book called The Beer Option. We are, for this segment, at the bar right downstairs from our office, the Tabletop Tap in Englewood, Colorado, and we're joined by Dr. Jared Stout. Dr. Stout, we're here to talk about your book, The Beer Option, and thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what is The Beer Option? Well, you know, I'm building on the title, The Benedict Option, the book by Rod Dreher, because the Benedictines not only inspire us about Catholic culture in general and, and how to live the faith intentionally in the modern world, but they're also the greatest brewers in history. The Benedictines really invented beer as we know it today. They perfected the modern brewing process, and they also were the first ones to use hops and beer in the 700s in northern France. Why, ha- why was beer such a part of their monastic life, and why is there a correlation, it sounds like, between beer and, and the development of Catholic culture? Well, they really needed it to survive. Once you get you know, above the grape line in Europe, you know, you're, you're not living off of wine. The, the water was not trustworthy mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And so the monks, not only did they brew uh, for their own consumption, uh, but they also used beer for you know, the pilgrims for the sick and just the local population. So it was really a key economic uh, ingredient of the success of the monasteries. So, Jared, I mean, I like, you know, I like a high life when I get home from work as much as the next guy, I suppose. I won't hold that against you. But But I'm not really, I mean, you know, there are people who really know a lot about beer and craft beer. And they, and part of the suggestion of your book is that understanding kind of the development and history of beer gives us some insight even to the spiritual life and into the Christian community. Is that right? Yeah, I think in part because we see beer as part of the work of the monks. and, And then we can really understand how we're called to be 
you know, producers of culture. We're supposed to be craftsmen ourselves, going back to the commands that, that God gave us to subdue the earth and to till and care for the garden. Um, and so the, the monks are still the best brewers in the world today. And we think especially the Belgian Trappist. But mm-hmm. this is really spreading uh, throughout the rest of the world as well as more monks are going back to it. So we kind of see what the monks are doing and saying, well, maybe we need to be producers more today as well. So that doesn't necessarily mean that all of us will be brewing beer. But what's the, what's the takeaway in terms of our own life? What does it mean to be producers in terms of our family life and our Catholic identity? Yeah, that, that we're called to be co-creators with God. You know, that, that he really kind of left creation incomplete in a way. And he said, you know, I want you to participate in this. I want you to exercise your creativity. And I think as everything has become, you know, so centralized in our culture, you know, the mass state, mass economics, really needed to get back to the local community, local economics, and even home economics to say we can and should make things ourselves in our own family. This strikes me as a place where there's sort of an, uh, an entry point for Catholics in – it's just something that's an emerging trend in um, in culture, right? I mean, there's this real desire for like artisanal everything, right? And and um, and you know, micro micro brews and um, and sort of this this desire for um, a sense of authenticity with regard to the things that we consume. And it sounds like you're saying that's um that's a facet of Catholic culture in some way. So maybe it's even a point of evangelization. I think so. I mean, when you crack open a beer, you know, with friends, the conversation flows. Maybe people tell me that even they have like a beer ministry where if they want to talk about something serious with with another guy, it's like that's acceptable over a beer, whereas it might not be otherwise. And of course, we have movements like Theology on Tap. So beer definitely is a way to evangelize and bring people together. And and I would say even more than that, as we look into the microbrews, yes, okay, there can be beer snobs. But on the other hand, you know, being able to really appreciate something that's very high quality and well-crafted and has a much more complex, you know, flavor and aroma, that is more cultural, and I think it can lift up our sensibilities sure. uh, in a flat culture. Sure. Yeah, that's a very good point. Thanks. So we're actually, we're not just going to talk about beer. We're going to drink some beers. So um, we're going to sample a beer that you've recommended to us, and we have some samplers here with us. So uh, CNA Deputy Editor-in-Chief Michelle Rosa. Uh, CNA Managing Editor Carl Bunderson and the newly married CNA uh, writer Mary Now Farrow is here to drink some beer with us. Um, guys, thanks for being here to have a beer on um, in, the, in the morning. Uh, what are we going to drink, Jared? Uh, so this is Orval. It's a Belgian Trappist beer. I, I was just visiting the monastery back in October. And the reason I recommended this beer is it's, it's very unique. It's a strong Belgian ale. But one of the distinctive elements of it is that they use just the, the local wild yeast and their secondary fermentation. Oh, really? Like yeah. a, it's like a sourdough kind of. It is, for, yeah. For yeah, it'll have that. some of that character. I mean, it's not a very sour beer. Uh-huh. I mean, it has a little bit of that, but, but you'll see it's just very unique in its flavor. <laughs> so, Jared, we're going to pour some beer now. Give us some tips for the perfect pour. Well, some people say, you know, you actually don't want to avoid the foam. Like, let, let it come out, you know, that really opens up the beer. You know, just just pour it. You know, you don't want to get crazy and have it spill everywhere because a lot of these stronger beers, you know, can produce a lot of foam. All right, Mary. To satisfy you, our podcast audience, Kate, is opening beers around the time we usually would be drinking coffee. So that's how much... (laughs) We, we care for you, and I, I hope you realize that the sacrifices we're willing to make for this podcast. <laughs> All right, let me pour you a little bit more. I mean, if you haven't had this beer or a clone of it, because some, some American breweries make clones, uh, I bet you've never had a beer that tastes like this. 
Cool. So what's a good what's a good toast, a good beer option, Catholic toast for us? <laughs> well, you could go prosit in Latin or prost in German. All right, you know? prosit. <laughs> so Jared, what should we be tasting here? Well, so you can you can you can see that little bit of sourness here. Mm-hmm. Some people actually say that it has a soapy quality. I know that that's not something mm. that may make everyone rush out to want to buy it, but um, I, I find it to be very uh, complex, you know, flavor. That it, and I think it, you know, even as a somewhat beguiling in the sense, like, what is that flavor exactly? It's I was very just unique. feeling beguiled by it. Actually, so I'm glad, <laughs> glad it wasn't the only one. Exactly beguiled. <laughs> it's kind of citrusy too. Like it's got yeah. like a light citrusy, bubbly uh, flavor to it. But that's kind of like you said that's not all it's more complex than that it's it's not like a like a summer shandy or anything but there are like definite hints of citrus and yeah i like this it's surprisingly light for a belgian which is a nice change from what i might have thought uh, so the beer option is one way that people can learn more about beer and catholic culture but if somebody wanted to get started knowing about beer or enjoying it in a catholic way what would you recommend well get get some friends together and have a tasting so in addition to orval some of the other famous belgian trappists are uh, chimay rochefort vestmala uh, but you know there are, there's a, a good website uh, monastery greetings which has a number of other uh, trappist beers including cool. the new american trappist spencer from Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Also, the, the Trappist in Rome at Tre Fontani, and they use eucalyptus uh, in their beer. Really? Wow. Uh, and I really recommend Bira Nursia as well from the monks in Norcia. There's mm-hmm. a lot of American monks there, and they are, are brewing great beer. Is it hard to dark. get? Beer they have their own uh, website. Cool. So, BiraNursia.com, and you can just buy it right there. I have a follow-up question. Oh, cool. Um, so anyone who's watched The Parent Trap knows that when you drink wine, you like do this and you smell it and you swirl it around. Does the same thing apply for beer? Yeah, that's it a does. great question. What's well, the right way to taste it? Yeah, so you definitely want to smell the beer, and that's one of the reasons why you would drink it in a glass and not the bottle, so that your nose can be involved. <laughs> because uh, Kate's s- drinking from the bottle, and Carl is drinking from – somehow he put his glass in a paper bag. <laughs> he's actually now he's just sitting out on the curb drinking the beer. <laughs> So you, you really want to get that sense of smell involved uh, for sure. So, yeah, swirl it around. Let it sit in your mouth a little bit because different parts of your mouth are involved in, in the process of taste. Just drink it very slowly. Enjoy it. The, the beer option is not simply about drinking a lot of beer. <laughs> you know, it is about evangelizing. It's about producing culture uh, and just looking at the renewal of culture in general through the angle of beer. And we do see that the saints, you know, uh, have performed beer miracles. Some of them have brewed. um, And that beer has to be rightly ordered within a life of holiness. Uh, But when it is rightly ordered, you know, it is part of a robust Catholic culture and is part of the way that we can really uh, begin building a new Catholic culture today. So, Jared, I see two sort of veins of, of, of perspectives on alcohol in the United States, maybe one less than the other and maybe three, but... Um, there's this sort of like um, sort of deeply Protestant um, sort of d- discomfort with alcohol, if not sort of total teetotaling abstinence. Then there's um, the culture of, um, you know, just reckless indulgence, right, so that beer exists for you to drink too much of it and right. get drunk, right? And, and then there's a, maybe a kind of um, sort of faux snob, like sort of faux high culture about beer, sort of hipster high culture about beer. It, it sounds like you're saying a Catholic approach to beer is none of those exactly. Yeah, de- definitely. It's not. It's not any of those. Right? It has to be rightly ordered. And and I look in the book at at moderation. Right, this virtue that can say this is the right amount in the right context at the right time, 
Uh, and I think part of the reason why America has this teetotaling culture is because whiskey was the, the, the main alcohol that was consumed in early America. And so when – My house and, is it, much like an early American. Yeah. <laughs> so it, you know, the, with the strong spirits were not uh, available throughout most of the Middle Ages. They began to be produced in the 1400s, became popular in the following centuries. And then people really got carried away. You know, beer was a normal part of the diet. Mm-hmm. Laborers regularly consumed beer throughout the workday. It was considered to be food, food stuff. But then, uh, you know, strong alcohol came along, and people really began to have problems with drunkenness. So then there was this movement against it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that the monks once again are the models, right, for integrating beer in the, with spiritual life and a balanced uh, lifestyle and culture. Sure. You mentioned beer miracles earlier. Yeah. Do you ever call them miracles? Well, I think I will from now on. <laughs> Thank you from that. You know? Miracles is definitely going to be the title of this episode. Um, I've heard that in heaven there is no beer, and that's why we drink it here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that I, I think that you know, there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and, and all of the good things of the earth will be perfected and transformed. So I don't think there literally will be the kind of beer that we know here and now, but I think there will be something even better, the, the perfection of beer. Well, Jared, thank you so much for being here with us uh, on CNA Newsroom. We'll, uh, we'll pour one out in your honor. Where does pouring one out come from? So there used to be uh, libations that were literally poured sure, out right. onto the ground in honor of the gods. But this was actually in the Old Testament as well. There was a drink offering of shikar, which uh-huh. was a barley-based drink. So you could translate that beer, even though we usually translate that strong drink in English. So they would pour out you know, a drink offering in honor of God. Wow. Well, we will, we will toast you, Jared, and pour one out for the Lord. <laughs> and uh, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. In his book, Drinking with the Saints, Baylor University professor Michael Foley pairs the liturgical calendar with different beer, wine, and cocktails. Our producer, Kate Weick, gave Michael a call to ask him about modern attitudes toward alcohol. Do you have a background in bartending, or what was the inspiration uh, for putting this book together? No, I have, I've never been a professional bartender. I've, I've only bartended out of love, never for money. My wife and I enjoy an evening cocktail together. It's our way of catching up at the end of the day and time to relax and reconnect. We also, as a family, love the liturgical year. We love observing the feast days with our children, bringing them up with liturgical customs. And so eventually those two things came together. We thought, how can we combine uh, drinking with observing the liturgical year? And the idea occurred to us to pair drink ideas with the feast days of the saints. Was that a challenging thing to do, or was that something that you found was kind of a natural connection? It was sometimes challenging, uh, especially with the early saints. Obviously, we, have, we don't have a lot of information about them. We don't have, for example, uh, a knowledge of their eating or drinking habits. Um, and usually when they're mentioned, they're very ascetical. But they would never say, oh, and this saint's favorite wine was a nice Merlot. That Those are the sorts of things that didn't get handed down the generations. But we could find ways of pairing drink ideas with saints. Often the, the saint's hometown, the region he's from, may be famous for a particular wine. Or oftentimes it was even their symbol in Christian art. Maybe it was a pear or something, and you could you could pair that with some kind of Pair liqueur or something like that. 
So I, I read that you even pair some cocktails and some beer and wine with the season of Lent. Can you tell me a little bit about what you recommend in your book for the season of Lent for those who haven't given up alcohol, of course? You know, absolutely. So today when we think Lent, we think giving up something. But that has not been the case for most of Catholic history. For most of Catholic history, what you gave up was food. You fasted. You had a mandatory fast that all Catholics were obligated to observe. And so you didn't necessarily do the individual thing of like, oh, I'm giving up cookies or what have you. And the fast did not include abstaining from alcohol. Um, The Eastern Orthodox do something kind of like that. They have these wine-free days, which I don't fully understand. But there are a couple of reasons why you didn't give up alcohol during Lent. One was people needed alcohol to purify their drinking water. Drinking low-grade alcohol, such as small beer, small beer is the term for beer with a very low percentage of alcohol, um, was safer than drinking water. So when you think of the situation before modern water treatment plants, you would either drink low alcohol beer or you would add a little bit of wine to water to kill the waterborne pathogens. So abstaining completely from alcohol was not necessarily a safe alternative. And then the second thing about Lent, which is interesting, is that because of the rigors of the fast, monks actually invented a special Lenten beer that was extra rich in nutrients and vitamins, and it would supplement for the fast. And we still have that beer today. It's called Doppelbach. So it's a German kind of beer. It was invented by the Polaner monks. And uh, according to the, the tradition, the, uh, the Polaner monks would actually only drink Doppelbach during Lent and, and fast entirely from food. They would just drink beer for the 40 days of Lent. I feel like that's something that would scandalize a lot of people today. Why do you think that shift happened? When do you think that shift happened between, you know, having this balanced or um, measured approach to alcohol and incorporating it into your life and then what we have today where alcohol is almost seen as, as a bad thing? I think there are two reasons for it. One is the Reformation. I should be more specific, the Puritans. Even though the Puritans themselves brewed their own beer, they they were not teetotalers, but a certain Puritanical spirit did infect Christianity beginning in the 19th century. So I'm not going to fault the entire Reformation. Luther himself was a big beer drinker. (laughs) Apparently, he actually played a drinking game that involved the Our Father. He was not a teetotaler. The Puritans weren't even teetotalers, but there definitely came in to Protestantism and an animus against the consumption of alcohol. And I think the other reason was genuine scandal, uh, especially when you get the invention of hard liquors like gin. When gin was first introduced in England and the United States, it was basically the crack cocaine of, of the 18th century. It just wreaked havoc on the working class and crime spiked and it was just a big mess. So you got temperance movements in the 19th century uh, as a reaction to this. And needless to say, alcohol's reputation was tarnished by this, uh, this abuse. 
the one thing that's interesting is that this problem, this perception of alcohol is chiefly in Protestant countries, that you don't have this problem in historically Catholic cultures. The alcoholism rate in the United States is 5.5%. The alcoholism rate in Italy, where there is no legal drinking age, is 0.5%. So there's something screwy about our, our American puritanical culture vis-a-vis -vis alcohol that, that is not true in Catholic countries like Italy or France. And is that something that you're hoping to combat with your book? One of the purposes of the book is not necessarily to increase your consumption of alcohol, but to yoke it to genuine festivity. And I think that's one of the things we Catholics need to work on, especially in these troubled times, is maintaining a sense of joy and merriment. And I do think that alcohol can play a, a normal role in genuine Christian merriment. I think the best compliment I ever got was that I was giving a talk at a parish in New Jersey, and the pastor introduced me, and he said, drinking with the saints is the best evangelical tool that has come into my hands in some time. He said, I have a lot of friends who are former Catholics or, you know, just sort of alienated from the church. When I give them a book on the saints, a wall goes up. When I give them a book on drinking, a wall goes down. <laughs> So you guys might have noticed that both Jared and Michael talked about this beer fast that monks in Germany would do during Lent back in the 17th century. We couldn't stop talking about this in our newsroom. Drinking beer and only beer every day during Lent? Some people wondered if that takes a toll on your body. Some people just wondered where they could sign up. We had to find out. So we called up Jay Wilson, who works with the Iowa Brewers Guild. Jay attempted that beer fast back in 2011, and he talked with us about his experience. Here's Jay. You know, I guess I'm a little bit interested in history, and I've always been interested in beer. You know, you just sort of hear this origin story about how the monks developed a doppelbach style of beer to help kind of sustain them during their Lenten fast. And I always thought that was kind of interesting. And I could never really find, you know, any real specifics. You know, how much beer did they drink or what, just any of the real historical details. And I thought, you know, this might be kind of an interesting project. So I decided that, you know, in order to do research, I would just sort of pull it out firsthand, uh, everything that I couldn't find in books, and, and just do it myself. So I collaborated with a friend of mine who's the then head brewer at a, at a brewery in Des Moines, um, and we, we brewed a somewhat historically accurate uh, version of a Doppelbach based on the numbers that we could find as far back as we could, and I drank that for 46 days. Uh, during Lent of 2011. When you were brewing this Doppelbach, what were like the ingredients? What kind of set it apart from like a typical beer that people might drink just on a Saturday? It's a dark, deep, kind of malty, uh, kind of bread crust, toasty, bready uh, kind of flavor. Um, not too much in the way of hops in it. It's it's more of a malt forward beer, so a little bit of sweetness. Modern day Doppelbachs probably start out at about seven and a half to eight, eight and a half percent alcohol and have kind of a nice ruby tint to them. The oldest information I could find, like brewing records on a Doppelbach, was, I want to say maybe like the 1730s or so. 
And in that research, I found that there, what in the brewing we call an original gravity, like the, the measurement of the sugar content in the beer before it's fermented, um, found that, that their original gravity was probably 1095, which might mean nothing to most of your listeners, maybe a few. Um, the finishing gravity was something like 1050, 1055, which won't mean much to many of your listeners, but maybe a few homebrewers out there. Uh, would know that that's a really high finishing gravity. That would have been a really sweet, sugary beer. And if you kind of do the math on the starting gravity and ending gravity, it actually wouldn't have been terribly high alcohol. It might have been 5.5% alcohol, like much of the beer we drink today is, but it would have been very, very sweet. So when we developed our recipe, we wanted it to be akin to that, but not so sugary sweet that... um, brewery that was going to be selling the bulk of it, everything that I wasn't going to drink, um, we wanted to make sure that they could sell it. We allowed it to ferment out a little bit drier. We targeted it about 6.5% alcohol, so it was a little bit smaller than today's Doppelbach. It was a little bit bigger uh, and drier than what the monk surely would have consumed, um, but it was a pretty respectable uh, marriage between the two, and we kept the alcohol kind of under control also so that you know, I felt comfortable drinking four or five of these per day and not getting too loaded, which was never the intent. The whole thing was totally above board research, not like a frat boy stunt. It clocked in at about, I want to say 288 calories, but it was about 6.5% alcohol. It was a bold, burly, malty, bready, um, toasted bread crust kind of flavor profile to it. It was, a little, it was still a little bit sweet, but um, not so sweet that you couldn't enjoy it. So what were kind of the parameters of your fast? Were you pretty faithful to the beer fast? I've done a lot of reading. I had I, I talked to a lot of Catholics. I I went to a monastery and spent a long weekend. And yeah, I mean, I, I really just, I drank nothing but this beer and water for 46 days. I had Catholics approach me and say, oh, well, you don't have to do it on Sunday. But I felt like Jesus probably wasn't out in the wilderness saying, oh, hey, look, it's Sunday. I can take the day off. And so I went from Ash Wednesday to, you know, full-blown Easter Sunday. And so that equaled 46 days for me. And, and, and my goal was to do that perfectly unless I really, I wasn't, you know, willing to endanger my health. Um, if I felt like I needed to take a vitamin, then at some point I might choose to do that. If I felt like maybe I should get a little bit more protein um, by adding chicken broth to my diet, then maybe I would do that. But I never did that. I never really got to the point where I had to. I did a really thorough physical before I started. And then every week or two after that, I revisited the doctor and he tested my numbers and I did it clear till the end. And then a couple of weeks afterwards, just kind of monitoring. So, you know, of course my liver numbers went upward and my kidney numbers, you know, those were kind of peculiar slash scary, depending on your point of view for a little bit, but it was fine. And there was a moment when he was kind of concerned uh, because of some of those numbers going up. He's like, you know, you really need to drink more water than you're already drinking to help kind of flush your kidneys out a little bit better. And I did drink more water and uh, that really helped with the problem. A lot of people still, I mean, even today, talk about you attempting this fast and what it was actually like because you have this idea of like, oh, like you have those days where you have, 
you know, drinks throughout the day, and then you just feel kind of nasty afterward. Um, but that wasn't really the case for you, was it? Like you felt you felt pretty good. Uh, I would say um, the first three days, you know, I had a headache. Um, I was hungry. But then about, you know, day three into day four, my body just kind of flicked a switch and was like, oh, okay, we're not eating food anymore. Uh, the headache was really just about me detoxing because I gained about 20 pounds in advance of the fast just because I knew that I was going to lose quite a bit of weight. So I put some extra on, which is probably a dumb idea. If I was ever going to do it again, I, I wouldn't do that. I would walk into it as healthy and strong as possible rather than as you know fat as I can make myself. Do you feel like you felt woozy or anything like that? Or was, was your mind really clear? Like, did people notice that something was different about you and how you were interacting with people and speaking, things like that? Or was everything just all pretty much the same? It was all really good. Like I said, I, I, I had a headache for about three days. And then once I turned the corner on that, I felt great. I, I, you know, I could do anything that I wanted to do. I went out of my way to not do a whole lot of exercise. I just didn't want to burn any calories. The most exercise I had was, you know, walking to the bathroom. You know, there, there was my exercise regime. And if I could have not done that, I probably would have been happy to. That's all I burned. I felt great and like total clarity. No problem working. Um, I, I want to congratulate you. I think you're one of the first people I've ever uh, done an interview with who hasn't led with, were you drunk all the time? Because, no, I wasn't drunk all the time. You go to the bar with your friends on a Friday night and you might have four beers. I had four beers starting at 8 a.m. and finishing at 9.30 or 10. Do you uh, still enjoy drinking that type of beer, heavier beer? Or now you're like, ugh, I swore that off. I'm, I'm kind of sick of the taste of it, you know? Oh, no, I, I like beer. It's no problem. <laughs> um, it, you know, I think the hardest thing, I kind of kid around, but I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm dead serious. Like the hardest part was having a, a, you know, a monogamous relationship with one beer for 46 days. I only drank Doppelback for 46 days. And that was kind of boring because, you know, I like to drink, you know, stout and Belgian beers and Pilsners and whatever. So that was pretty boring. Coming off of this experience, do you feel like you have an understanding of why the monks chose to brew this heavy, you know, bread crust like beer as you were describing it? Do you have an understanding of why they chose to go this route for Lent? Um, or what was kind of your takeaway as far as that? You know, I think they kind of realized that if you put more, more grain in the bin that you're going to have more nourishment in there so they're still drinking a liquid diet but you know it, it definitely they wouldn't have had the science to to back it up at that moment they didn't realize that you know at that time period monks would have uh, encouraged people to drink beer instead of water they didn't know why they were encouraging that but they knew that people that drank water got sick and people that drank beer did not get sick and they didn't realize it was because during the boiling process the bacteria was killed off and made it safe to drink undoubtedly they they probably would have had a rougher time you know i i felt a little rough around day 17 18 19 and i bet you they felt rough more than i did because if they were drinking water to hydrate their water wouldn't have been as safe as my water so they may not have even been doing that so they they probably would have been pretty dehydrated i bet you they would have been a lot more uncomfortable than i was our body is pretty resilient and capable of more than we typically ask of it we're probably pretty weak-minded All right. Have a great day. Thanks again. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, that's it, guys. You have been listening to an entire episode of CNA Newsroom, all about the thing you might have given up for Lent that is all about beer and cocktails. 
Thank you for staying with us. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn, and with an incredibly amazing radio voice is our friend. My name is Anjan Christoph Wimmer. <laughs> We're produced and edited by Jonah McKeown and Kate Vike. Our executive producer is Kate Vike. Special thanks this week to all of our guests on the episode, Jared Stout, Jay Wilson, Michael Foley. Special thanks to Christoph Wimmer for being here to host with us. We'll see you next week. <laughs>